And the rest of us that are in the room, how are we doing this morning? Good, good, good. Um, pray like Peter. Um, you, you guys know we've been working through um, a series on prayer and, and what does it mean to pray and how should we pray. And we've been looking at the examples of leaders in the scriptures and, and learning from their prayer life. We started with Paul um, in Thessalonians. We moved to David in Psalms. Uh, we looked at Moses last week in Exodus. This week we want to look at Peter. Um, and these prayers aren't, aren't uh, the prayer that Peter prays is not, it's not a huge prayer. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a passing prayer. You know, I, I, I define prayer as, a, as, as moments where we are communing with God. And there, there's a moment in which Peter in his, in his penmanship, um, as he is pinning this letter to, to the church, he, he communes with God. There's a few moments in it. And, and I want to, I want to highlight those moments and, and, and talk about what they teach us about prayer. One, one, one of the, you know, there's difficulties, there's many difficulties surrounding prayer. Can we all agree on that? Right? Um, there, there's, there's simple, there's more simple and more lighthearted difficulties, like just staying awake during prayer, right? It's just sometimes, sometimes you can get started and, and maybe you binge watched about 10 hours of Netflix, right? And you've been wide awake and then you say, man, I really need to spend some time in prayer. And then after about 10 seconds, you're ready to go sleep, right? It's just, just something about even the ideal of praying that you begin to be at war with yourself and, and in particular at war with, with the enemy as it relates to praying. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is indeed weak. And so, and so there's, there, there's, there's moments like that that we're battling with prayer, but then there's other moments. There's, there's, there's moments in which you encounter suffering. Maybe, maybe even before we even get to suffering, maybe you encounter sin. There's certain kinds of sin or types of sin, or there's just moments in your life where you're struggling with sin. And when you're struggling with sin, the, the, the tendency is to push away from God rather than to push in towards God, right? You want to try to hide. You know, it's the, it's the default posture. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they didn't say, oh my goodness, what have we done? Let us run to God. They said, oh my goodness, what have we done? Let us go hide from God. But then there's moments like, like just raw suffering. And in those moments of raw suffering, you don't want to really talk to God. At least sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're hurting and, 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 you're, and you're wounded and you're, and you're struggling through whatever it is that you're struggling through. And so, and so you're, you've been talking to God maybe fairly often and yet you find yourself struggling. And so you get to a point where it's like, well, I don't even know if God's listening anymore. So I'm just, just rather not talk to God during these moments. And, and what I find interesting about this text is that Peter leans into God in the midst of suffering. He doesn't, he doesn't fall away from God. He actually moves in towards God and he encourages the people that he's writing to, 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 to lean in towards God as they suffer. Let me give you a little background about the people that we're referring to. In, 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 in chapter 1 of this text, chapter 1, verse 1, we, we find that these people, Peter calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We know these people are exiles. They're, 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 they're exiles of the dispersion. In other words, they've been scattered. They've been, they've been placed in different places throughout all of these different regions. 
and out of these different places in which they've been scattered, none of them are really their home. They're considered, they're considered outsiders. As a result, as a matter of fact, the scattering, the dispersion is a product of persecution. And, and, and many surmise that these folks are under a great deal of persecution. And you don't really have to even surmise that. If you read the entire letter of 1 Peter, you get that indication. He's constantly encouraging them in the midst of suffering and in light of suffering. So these are suffering people that have been pushed to the outside. They're a persecuted group. They're a scattered group. And they're a group in some ways without a home. And so Peter opens this letter to the scattered, persecuted church without a home with a lesson in prayer. What should a scattered, persecuted church without a home expect from one of their great shepherds as a lesson? Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless it. Bless it. Peter opens this, 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 this text with a blessing to God. Who receives the blessing? God receives the blessing. God the Father is the one to be blessed. What is this actual blessing? Well, the word blessing is, is, comes from, comes from a Greek word and it's the same Greek word that we get the word eulogy from. Eulogy. What is a, what is a eulogy? A eulogy is a, 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 a moment in which we offer praise to something or someone. A eulogy is a time, if you, if you know eulogies, it's a time where we, we, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe the guy wasn't that great, right? But we try to come up with a couple of things and we, you know, cook up a couple of reasons and we say, hey, well, there's some good things about this guy, right? And so we, you know, some of us have to fight harder than others, right? But we, we, we really, really, really work hard to muster up a few good things because a eulogy is a moment in which we are offering praise. Are you, are you tracking with that? You're offering praise to someone and the legacy that they have left behind, possibly. And so eulogy is, literally, means to praise something or praise someone. The word blessing comes from this word eulogy. It's the ideal, at least in this text, and it's the ideal of praising someone. Peter's first words after he greets these persecuted, scattered Christians without a home is an opening prayer of praise. Peter in this blessing is leading us to a truth that we all should really, really, really grasp a hold of, and that is this, God is enough. Through the storms of life, God is enough. Through loss, God is enough. Through, through trials, tribulations involving suffering, God is enough. Through broken relationships, God is enough. Through broken bones in our bodies, God is enough. Our prayers, in order to be effective prayers, must carry the same echo of praise in them. Peter is not teaching us to believe that God is sufficient because of our present condition in this life. He is teaching us that God is sufficient regardless of our present condition in this life. Peter is saying that prayers must carry our praise even through our problems. In the last month, the concentrated focus prayer that we've been having as a church, we've been doing 40 days of prayer, intentional prayer. I'm more than confident that many of you have had to pray through some really crummy days. And that is, that is exactly and precisely where prayer is supposed to meet its peak. Prayer is supposed to meet its peak 
in the crummy days, if you've grown accustomed to stopping your prayers when life gets bad, then you've missed the point of praying. But it is not just that fact that, that, Peter's, that Peter is praying that should move us. Peter is not just praying in this moment, in this kind of, in this kind of um, um, parathetical or this moment of pause in his letter. He is, he is blessing God through prayer. He is praying praise to God. I think about prayers of praise. I think about Job and Job chapter 1, where Job is first, first tested. And you, and maybe you know the story. There is Satan who comes and approaches God and says, Hey, I'm looking for someone that I can test, that I can try to see if they're going to curse you. And God says, Have you considered my servant Job? Satan says, Yeah, I've looked at him, kind of thought about him, but you got this hedge around him. You won't let anybody touch him. You won't let anything bad happen to him. If you remove that hedge, though, I'll get to him. He'll curse you to your face. God says, okay. He lifts the hedge of protection. And Satan begins to throw all sorts of fiery darts at this man. The Bible picks up in chapter 1 of Job, and it says that, verse 13, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you and while he was yet speaking there came another and said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you and while he was yet speaking there came another and said your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their old brother's house and behold a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you do you do you hear the this theme. It's like, it's like literally pouring salt into a wound. Everything is happening really, really, really bad, but then one person is left to go and tell the news. And so it's even worse, right? It's like someone's poking at me as this destruction happens. His children are gone. His product is gone. His laborers are gone. Even his property is being caught up in this, re- this, this, this devastating moment in his life. And how does Job respond? He's, he responds with a momentary praise of prayer, praise in his prayer. He arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground and he worshiped and he said, naked I came from the mother's womb, my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Listen, bless it, bless it, bless it. Don't move too fast past that word. After this man has lost his kids, after this man has lost all of his stuff, property, cattle, all kinds of stuff, camels, laborers, property, everything, blessed be the name of the Lord. This is the mark of a heart that is consumed with the truth of having God even when all else is gone is enough. 
As we discussed a little bit on uh, last week when we talked about Moses, a true embrace of Christian maturity only comes with the reality that God is enough with nothing else added. Praying with praise through our problems signals to God, signals to the world, and signals to ourselves that he is enough. What does your prayer life right now, right now, say about your understanding of that truth? Right now in this very moment, what does your prayer life say about your understanding of that truth? Is that truth true for you? Is God enough? Is the truth becoming true for you possibly? Is God enough? What about, what, 10% of the time is God enough? 20%, 30%, 90%? This is where God is trying to take your heart. To the point that you can face persecution and suffering with praise in your belly. Why? Because he's enough. One theologian says that this phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the language of a heart that is full of joy and that bursts forth with gratitude in view of mercy. It's the language of a heart that is full of joy. How can Peter open this letter with such jubilant celebratory language in light of what the church scattered all around is about to face or is facing. Peter gives us two reasons in these three verses. The first reason is, the, uh, and we'll talk about, these are more of the why for the blessing. The first reason is that Peter can pray with praise through our problems or through his problems or through their problems because he has given us, he being God, new life. We pray with praise through our problems because he has given us new life. Peter is able to bless the Lord and encourage the saints to do the same through trial because in Christ we have received new birth. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. You will never understand nor be able to pray with praise through problems until you have a clear understanding of what Christ has given you through the gospel. Those of us who have trusted Christ with our lives have received new birth. And that new birth has been established, according to Peter, in mercy. It says, because or according to his great mercy, your new birth in Christ is not a product of your merit. Your new birth in Christ isn't because you've been good enough, nor is it because you've been righteous enough or or intelligent enough or wise enough to earn it. Your new birth in Christ is because of his great mercy. And that's what prompts praise and prayer. Secondly, those of us who have trusted in Christ where our lives have received a new birth established by God. Peter says that according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. Your new birth in Christ was affected not by your action, but by the action of the Holy Spirit at work in you. He has caused us to be born again. What effect does a child have on his birth? Any takers? He or she doesn't initiate anything. It happens outside of him, doesn't it? God is saying, so it is with your new birth. He is initiating the actions that leads to your transformation. The Bible says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, born again. And this is why praise is 
it is wrapped in Peter's prayer. But Peter doesn't stop there. Thirdly, those of us who have trusted Christ with our lives have received a new birth that's established through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is what secures the new birth for us. This is what the word of God says about this connection between our new birth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says in Romans chapter 5 verse 6, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 5 through 8, the apostle Paul writes and says this. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Christ. Through the resurrection, we've been given life, new birth. We are united with Christ in death as we die to the old way of living. The old man dies. And we are united with Christ in resurrection as we are raised to a new life for God and for his glory. Paul connects that new birth to, to Christ's resurrection in Romans 8 as well. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that the new birth is possible. If God the Father is powerful enough to raise Jesus, then he is powerful enough to raise you. The new birth is connected with and established in the resurrection of Jesus. In addition, Peter says that the new birth is not to an old hope. You aren't made alive to an old hope. Rather, the new birth opens up to us a living hope, according to Peter in this text. A hope that moves us beyond the present life and stations us and centers us. And an eternal hope, an eternal life. I have no issues with people that are striving to impact the here and now through natural means. I have no issues with working hard, studying hard. I have no issues with saving and investing. I have no issues with being uh, disciplined in your finances and training your kids to be productive citizens in this country and in this life. But, But if I can be honest, just for a moment, I'm alarmed by how much stock Christians who have been given new and living hope place on the things in this life. And how little stock, I'm not talking about outsiders, how little stock Christians have placed in what is to come in the next life. To the point where all the things I mentioned above, all the things I mentioned just a second ago, impact us far more than the things that should. If you've ever wondered at one time or another, why on earth is my praise so shallow, look no further than your hope. Look no further than your hope. What you hope in will ultimately dictate what you give praise for. You hope more in money, your praise will be most impacted when finances are tight. 
You hope more, in, uh, hope more for success in your professional life. Your praise will be most impacted when you don't get the promotions you thought you deserved. You hope more for your children to be good reflections of you. Your praise will be most impacted when they aren't living up to that expectation. You hope more for, you hope more in your marriage than in Christ. Your praise will be most impacted if it's not going the way it's supposed to. You hope more in sex. Your praise will be most impacted when you don't have it. You hope more in drugs, alcohol, substance, etc. You hope more in being liked and accepted by people. Your praise will be most impacted when people don't like or accept you. What I hope in dictates my praise. What are you hoping in most these days? What is driving your hope? Peter describes this living hope established through the resurrection of Jesus Christ in another way that we would also do well to pay attention to. He, he talks about this living hope that's been established through the resurrection. But then he says that this new birth that has produced this living hope is also a new birth that has produced an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. One theologian unpacks these, these words, imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded. And in his unpacking of these words, he says, for the, for the word imperishable, it has, it has no principles of decay in it. Therefore, it must be totally different from this earth. Imperishable means it cannot decay. It cannot, it cannot rot away. This inheritance that, that, that we have as a result of being born again cannot rot. Talks about undefiled, the theologian that, that, that writes about, un, un, that describes this that I'm referencing, Adam Clark. He says, nothing impure can enter it. Undefiled, it not only has no principles or seeds of dissolution of it in itself, but it can never admit any. Therefore, its deterioration is impossible. It cannot be defiled and it will not defile. Unfaded means it cannot wither. It cannot fade away. It's, it's like a, it's like a, a flower that never loses its beauty, that never loses its color, that never loses its aroma. And then finally, it's kept in heaven. The inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. In other words, it's safe. It's in places that cannot be reached. In places that cannot be touched. In a place, rather, that cannot be reached, tarnished, tainted, touched. This primarily speaks to the eternal nature of our inheritance that God offers his children that have been newly born by the Spirit into this family. This is where prayer, this is where praise and prayer comes from. As we meditate and we think on the hope that has been established through our new birth in Christ, and as we meditate and we think on and hope on the inheritance that we have been given through our new birth, through Christ. This is where praise comes from. Praise doesn't come from, from constantly, constantly letting your hope rest here. If you let your hope rest here, there'll never be a praise that comes forth from you. 
Your heart was meant for something far greater. And that's where your heart has to look. If, you can, if you're going to ex- ever expect praise through suffering to come forth. What we have stored in heaven for us will not fade. It will not perish. It will not and cannot be corrupted. It is safe in heaven. It can't be stolen. And it is for us, for those who have been born again. No other inheritance in all of creation retains those qualities. I mean, think about rags to riches stories and people that inherit lots and lots of money. What's interesting about the inheritance, little known fact, but, but one, one group studies, one group of wealth consultants by the name of the Williams Group did a study, a little research on inheritance transfer. And what they discovered is that 70% of families, wealthy families with high net worth lose their fortune by the second generation. 70% of people that have been given massive inheritances of wealth lose it by the second generation. One of those unfortunate stories was a British woman who in the mid to late 70s inherited what roughly amounts to now about $29 million. But due to, uh, and she actually received it as a result of her mother, I believe it was a heart attack, and, 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 and she had this money, but due to poor decisions and due to reckless living with alcohol and drugs and reckless spending and shopping sprees and, and all sorts of other things, the woman was broke and literally homeless in less than a decade. The inheritance that we receive in this life are capable of being defiled by us and or are capable of defiling us. The inheritances we receive in this life are capable of perishing. As In fact, they will perish. Some of the best cars that we possess right now, today, are, that are in tip-top shape will be in junkyards decades from now. Just a couple of decades from now. And the only way you say, well, my car won't be in a decade, uh, my car won't be in a junkyard in a decade from now. And you know, you know why? Because you'll have to spend an, another inheritance trying to keep it. But it won't keep itself. You leave it to itself, it's going to perish. But folks, this treasure is imperishable. This treasure is incorruptible. We chase things that are fleeting when we have something that will not flee. Something that cannot flee. Peter understands this, which is why he can open up his letter with a prayer of praise, even as they suffer together for the sake of the kingdom. Last point I'll make this morning is that we pray with praise through our problems because God is keeping us. First point was that we pray with praise through our problems because we are born again. But the second point is that we pray with praise through our problems because he keeps us born again. Verse 5 in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, who by God's power 
talking about those people that have received this inheritance. It says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. If you've ever watched a good Lifetime movie, I haven't. Maybe I have, I don't know. I got a wife, I have to sometimes, right? If you ever watched a good Lifetime movie or if you've ever watched a good solid episode of Dateline NBC, you are more than familiar with the story of the good, the, 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 the man or the woman or the friend who's inherited this massive amount of money from, from a parent or from a good friend only to be murdered by the jealous friend who is looking to secretly take the inheritance, right? And they hide the murder in some kind of goofy incident. I don't know how he fell on that knife, right? But it's been, but you know, they finally cracked the case and lo and behold, they were the murderer because they were set up to receive the inheritance if that person died. So they had to kill that person and then all of that kind of stuff. And so, so the crazy stuff, right? And you see this all the time. Imagine a twist in that story where, where, where the assailant is looking for opportunities to murder this person so they can, so they can get the inheritance that they feel like is rightfully there. And no matter what they try to do, they can't destroy the person. The one who is set to receive the inheritance just cannot die. To have his, have his car, they clip the brake line, they're ready for the car to crash into something, and he can push the brake just fine and, you know, and stop at the stoplight and keep going. What's going on, right? They hire a hitman to kill him, and the hitman says, man, every time I try to shoot the gun, it just continues to jam. I can't, I can't fire it. Every time I get around him, I can't shoot him. He tries everything that he can think of or she can think of to get rid of this person so they can take the inheritance that they feel like is rightfully theirs, and they can not destroy them. This is what Peter is declaring here in verse 5. See, we sometimes see where an inheritance is locked away by, behind some high security, virtually impenetrable vault, uh, and, 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 and nobody can get to the inheritance, but the people are kind of like, you know, just walking out in the open, ready to get knocked off, right? But, but what's crazy about, what's crazy about what God is doing in our salvation is that He not only guards the inheritance, He guards the inheritors. He guards the ones that are receiving the inheritance. This is how the kingdom of God works. The inheritance for the born again is safely kept in heaven, never to be tampered with, never to be stolen, never to be destroyed. And Peter's praise and prayer through problems is rooted in that reality that, that I have a living hope that is there that cannot be tampered with because Christ has saved me. But it is also rooted in another reality. And it is this, that Christ is keeping me for it. And that no matter what this life may bring, I'll get it. I'll get 
what he has laid aside for me. Notice the quality of this keeping. Verse 5, it says, who by God's power are being guarded. Being guarded. Guarded, the word in the original language is supposed to, is supposed to put you in the imagery of a possession that is guarded with spies all around at the gates. It's supposed to put you in the, the imagery of a possession that is completely and totally hemmed in from all sides. And Peter says, that's you. You're hemmed in from all sides. You're protected. You're covered. You're guarded. Your salvation is safe in God's hands. He talks about the force behind our keeping. Peter says that it's who by God's power are being guarded. By God's power, we can pray with praise through our problems because we don't have to carry the burden of keeping ourselves until the end. We can pray with prayer through our problems because if we continue to just simply rest in the finished work of Christ and just simply trust him by faith, he will do the keeping. And it says that it's by God's power that this guarding is happening. Don't walk too fast by those words. Don't underestimate God's power in your keeping. That power that's keeping you and me is the same power that spins the earth on its axis. That power that keeps you and me is the same power that's keeping planets on their orbits. It's the same power that spoke creation into existence. It's the same power that can destroy it just as quickly. It's the same power that forged the heavens for the righteous and hell for the unrighteous. It's the same power that brought floods in Noah's day and rained fire in Elijah's. It's the same power that resurrected Lazarus from the grave. And most importantly, it's the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave. That is the power at work in keeping and guarding you in order that you might receive the inheritance laid aside in heaven. This is the living hope we've been given. And it's a keeping that's done by faith. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith? We would have reason to fear if this keeping were established by our works, right? We would have reason to fear if we had to stay committed to working this thing in order, in order to, in order to get it. But it is not relying on your works. We can't work to earn our salvation, nor can we work to lose it. Our salvation is established and sustained through your faith in God, through your trust in God, through your leaning simply on him for salvation. And lastly, it's a, there's an end of this keeping. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation revealed in the last time is a picture of glory. It's the idea that, yes, you are justified now, which means you've been declared not guilty, and you are being sanctified, which means you are growing and maturing in Christ. But there's, a, there's coming a day where you will be completely and wholly perfected. No more sin to be ashamed of. No more bouts and no more struggles. No more suffering, no more tears, unless they're of joy. That keeping 
is keeping us all the way until that time. Jesus puts it like this in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I guard them on every side. Every gate is covered. He continues in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I guard them on every side. That's John chapter 10. And so we pray with praise through problems because he has saved us, but we pray with praise through our problems because he is keeping us. He's keeping the inheritance and he's keeping the inheritors. Lastly, if I can just point you to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, what's interesting about this text is that it begins and ends the same way. The way that Peter begins is a blessing. He offers a blessing to God for his salvation, the salvation of his people and the, and the keeping of his people. And as he continues throughout this book to encourage them to to hold fast, to suffer well, to lean on Christ even through hardship, he reaches his conclusion in chapter 5. And in in chapter 5, we hear hear these words. We hear verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then he says this, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Where does the praise come from? From the same place. After you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, the one who has saved you, the one who is keeping you, will complete you. Are you tracking so Peter uses the same means to bring praise, to, to, to generate praise from his soul. Out of that understanding, out of that living hope comes what? A praise to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. You think to him be dominion forever and ever comes from a man who is laying in a bed of money? No. You think to him be dominion forever and ever is coming from a man that has no issues around him, that has no persecution, that is coming from a man where everybody likes him? No. It's coming from a man that knows suffering. It's coming from a man that's seen suffering. It's coming from a man that's been thrown in prison for suffering, uh, for, for, for suffering for the kingdom's sake. It's coming from a man who will literally die for the sake of the kingdom. But where does the praise come from? It comes from the reality that God has saved, God is keeping, and God will complete the work that he has started in me. And so to him, to him 
be the dominion forever and ever. And let the church say, amen.